Good morning. Do you ever find it hard to put into practice the things you learn in the Bible? Maybe you want to become more Christ-like, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, that kind of thing, but that standard just seems out of reach. You're not really sure how to really put it into practice. Something I've experienced in my own life is knowing what I need to believe, knowing what I need to do, but it's farther out than where I actually am. It's outstripped my actual practice of Christianity. Well, these last couple of weeks, we've been, well, we've heard sermons on humility, on grumbling, and in my own life, working on my heart to see others as more valuable than myself, working on my heart to, to reduce that critical spirit, well, well, I know the teaching, but I struggle to put it into practice. Do you experience that? Do you have someone you look up to, though? Someone who walks the Christian life? And actually, they do seem Christ-like. They do seem to not struggle so much with the things that you struggle with. Have you hung around people who, who they don't struggle? They actually seem to demonstrate the traits that you, you desire. And maybe you've found that they actually start to rub off on you. Well, in the passage we'll look at today, Paul presses the Philippians, or he presses pause, rather, on the weighty teaching to the Philippians. There aren't any complex arcs from the Old Testament to the New Testament, promise and fulfillment. There isn't uh, any deep teaching on the attributes of God and how that is going to spur us forward. There aren't any words that theologians have argued for hundreds of years. Paul simply holds up two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus as living examples of some of the things, some of the important things he's just been teaching the Philippians and urging them to put those into practice. So as I said, we've been going through the book of Philippians this last month and a bit in a series called Joy in the Midst of Anything. And Philippians is a, is a letter written by Paul to the Philippians uh, in the church in Philippi. And despite being written by somebody who is definitely suffering, who has gone through tremendous trials, you see rejoicing and joy come up throughout the book. It's everywhere. And I'll just read you a couple quotes quickly. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And as we continue through this morning, I just want to lay a quick foundation on what I mean when I, when I say joy. Borrowing this definition from John Piper, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. So if you want to keep that definition in your back pocket, that's how I'm using that this morning. Not just a good feeling. So these last few weeks, we've, we've gone through the second chapter of Philippians, where Paul sets forth Christ as an example of humility, and he urges the Philippians to stop their grumbling. And, and we see Jesus a level of humility, it's hard to wrap your mind around. He's, he's literally God. 
literally more important than any of us, and yet he, he dies for us. Being born as a human and dying on a cross. So yet, Paul, he implores the Philippians to stop their grumbling or disputing so that they might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And Paul then moves on in this section that we'll look at this morning. And it's a section that at first glance, it just looks like he's updating them on travel plans. Yet I think it is directly connected to what's come before. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up with me to Philippians chapter two. I'll start reading at verse 19. Now Philippians is in the New Testament right near the end of the Bible. And if you wanna follow along in a physical Bible, I believe we have some just outside the doors, if you don't have one yourself. I'll begin reading at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I know how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. And I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life and completing what is lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning for worship. We thank you that we get to sing of you and to you and hear from you in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep my words faithful to you and what you have to say to us this morning, and that all of our hearts would be open to receive from you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, as I mentioned earlier, at first glance, this text seems like an update on travel plans from Paul. It's maybe a little weird that Paul starts talking about this right here, right in the middle of Philippians, and not at the end. I mean, it's not entirely uncommon for Paul to do that, but still, it's worth digging in. Why this update on Timothy and Epaphroditus here, sandwiched between some really heavy teaching on the Christian life? And follow the logic with me here. Because he, Paul doesn't spell it out maybe as clear as he does in something like 1 Corinthians 11. For example, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I think what's going on here is that Paul's just finished this very weighty section of teaching. He's written to the Philippians about the amazing humility of Christ, 
and how they need to put aside their grumbling and disputing and reorient their hearts to see others as more valuable than themselves. And here's these two men, one whom Paul is sending and then the other he's going to send later. And updating the Philippians about them makes sense right now because they're actually examples of what he's just been talking about. They're both examples mirroring Christ. So here are two flesh and blood everyday Christians who exemplify some of what Paul's been getting at. And you have Timothy serving with concern for others, serving in the gospel, and then you have Epaphroditus serving through his suffering for the work of Christ, even though it almost killed him. And this is one of those parts of the Bible that feels very human. He isn't holding them up like the author does in, say, the book of Hebrews, where they're, they're iconic examples of faith in the history of redemption. I mean, thinking about it in our modern context, Epaphroditus, he'd be sitting right there. You could talk to him. He was a part of the community. We could see him at church, probably at first service. And we could notice for ourselves the way he imitated Christ. We might have prayed for him as a church when we heard he was sick. And Timothy, well, he would have been that guest preacher. Maybe you met him once after a sermon, you thanked him. And the strange thing happened where um, you come to talk to him about the sermon and he starts digging into your life and he genuinely cares about you. And somehow it's, it's demonstrating that care. Well, these were real present people. So this morning, we'll look at these two men and their example. First, Timothy, or suffering, for, sorry, or serving for the sake of Christ. And secondly, Epaphroditus, and suffering for the sake of Christ. Well, first, let's look at Timothy. I'll read verses 19 to 24 for you again. And as I do, consider this text through the lens of putting others before yourself for the sake of Christ. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Well, you'll notice in this section that Paul is he's hopefully going to send Timothy to the Philippians, and, and one of the ways he describes him is genuinely concerned for your welfare. So, and backing up just a little bit, Timothy, well, he's mentioned throughout the New Testament. Paul calls him his true child in the faith when he writes to him in 1 Timothy. Out of everyone we read Paul interacting with, Timothy is his protege, and Paul mentors him. Timothy is he's the next generation of Christian leader. So Timothy is likely to be sent to the Philippians because he will genuinely care for them as a church leader. And earlier in Philippians, Paul commands them this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see the parallel here? Paul looks around and he has no one who will be concerned for others. They're focused on their own self-interests. But he has Timothy and he isn't like that. 
And I think it's important to know that Paul is sort of contrasting self-interest here with the interest of Christ. Timothy is genuinely concerned for their welfare. Timothy is genuinely seeking the interests of Christ. If I can put it like this, part of our reorienting our hearts to be more concerned about others than ourselves is seeking the interests of Christ. It's doing what, is con- what Christ is concerned about. And I'll sort of flip that around. If we're seeking the things that interest Christ, we will actually care about others. And if you were here two weeks ago, you heard a sermon on exactly this point, and I don't just want to re-preach that sermon. I don't want to just re-preach what has already, already been said, but I do want to press home that some of this isn't always just taught. Some of it is also caught. There are, per, there are people in the church, this church, who exemplify service for others that is rooted in their love of Christ. And I think we can recognize these people and we can, we can imitate them. I mean, this is community. This is discipleship. And as an aside, if you're you know, nodding your head right now thinking, yes, I'm one of these people, you probably aren't. I mean, personally, I've experienced this sort of community myself. And I'll just tell you um, how I, I saw it worked out in my own life and in, in the life of some of my friends. There were, there were a group of us who heard the gospel and we, we believed it and then we began to follow Christ. And this was the end of high school, just after high school. And we had a family who basically, they took us in. Um, they'd have us over for lunch on Sundays. Um, and some of us would, you know, we'd argue amongst ourselves as we're, we're figuring out and learning about the Bible. We'd, we'd argue about silly theological points, kind of way beyond our current sanctification. And the family would feed us lunch and dinner and listen to our problems and put up with our squabbling. And occasionally there would be some rebuke mixed in there, but it was overall very patient and loving. And that's the thing. This family modeled service. They modeled genuine concern. And in some small measure, that Christ-likeness began to rub off on us. And maybe if you ask our wives, they might wish it rubbed off a little bit more. But it still had a pretty significant impact on us. And I can think of, you know, I can think of times in my life where I've had realizations or learned something so significant, and it, and it affected the way I am, and it affected what I do. But then there's also this sort of slow, sort of deceptive change that comes about by living with people who exemplify those truths in their life. There are absolutely men and women in this church who exhibit this kind of caring for others, this kind of concern for others. And probably by the very nature of it, they aren't the loudest people in the room. And as we participate in community, not just on Sundays when we can make it, but in real friendships and mentoring relationships, the hope is that some of this holy osmosis will take place. Now, the other thing I'd like to highlight about Timothy, I mean, you can see it here in this text, is that he has served with Paul in the gospel. Or you might say the work of the gospel or the preaching of the gospel. And this is the kind of thing, by the way, that drew my wife and I to Central. This church is about the gospel. 
It's about the good news. And this, this gospel centrality, it affects all the different ministries. You hear it, you heard it a few weeks ago in the baptism and ministry partnership videos where people answer, what is it about the gospel that most captures your heart? Well, Paul was about the gospel. He labored constantly to share it, to share the good news of Jesus Christ and what he had done. And he looks at Timothy and he says, this guy, he's so valuable. He's proven himself. Look at his track record. Look at how he has served with me in the gospel. So how do we, like Timothy, serve others for the sake of Christ and for their joy? We care for them genuinely, and we also bring them the good news. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If not, it'll be on the screen here. I just want to quickly go over the gospel. This is one of those parts of scripture where it's just a very helpful summary of what the gospel is. I'll read verses 1 to 5 in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So now, if you're fuzzy at all on what the gospel is, on what exactly the good news of Christianity is, I invite you to highlight this, bookmark it, um, keep it with you as a helpful summary of what the gospel is. So what's the bad news? We're sinners, all of us. God has created all things. He is perfect, and by breaking away from him in sin, we've, we've created this chasm between us. And we can't cross it. We can't reconcile with God on our own. I mean, elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about us being dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. That's how bad it is. That's how final it is. But the good news, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, he came and he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross for the sins and the punishment that his people deserved. And he rose again to give them new life, eternal life. And God calls everyone to turn from their sin to him to Christ, and to trust in him. And in doing so, they are saved. So if you consider yourself and, like a Christian, and you've been in the church for a while, you might think that I'm about to drop a bunch of evangelism guilt on you. But I don't want to set this high standard. I don't want to press into that. I mean, how many people have you shared the gospel with this week? That's not what I'm getting at. It's not what I'm trying to do. The gospel is the good news that is reconciling people who are utterly lost with their God. It, it's bringing them from the brink of eternal death to eternal life. If we believe that, and we know we should do more for the work of the gospel, maybe we need to go find someone better than us at it so we can catch it from them. I mean, if we're horribly awkward, and I am for sure, Maybe living with and seeing people share the gospel with others who really need it. 
Maybe that's what we need. Not more guilt, but a community where people are living this out well. Well, secondly, let's look at Epaphroditus. I'll read verses 25 to 30 out again for you. And sort of like Timothy, as we read through this section, consider it through the lens of suffering for the sake of Christ. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill and near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him also, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. With Epaphroditus, I think there's another parallel, just like with Timothy, to Christ. I mean, you see in Christ, held up as having been obedient to the point of death. And here you have Epaphroditus, in his obedience, in his working for Christ, he is brought to the point of death. And he is saved by the mercy of God. So Epaphroditus, he gets sent to the Philippians, bringing financial aid to Paul as he's in prison. But he's also there to help him. And somewhere in that, whether on the way to Paul or while he is helping Paul, he gets really ill and he nearly dies. And so you have this man who travels a long distance to bring money and help support Paul and he nearly dies doing it. And what is his main concern? Well, this is a picture of someone who is more concerned about Christ than they are themselves. He's primarily concerned for the people back home, that they'll be worried about him. This is the kind of selflessness that is more worried about how suffering is affecting others than it is yourself. So I would put forward to you that just as Timothy is an example of serving others with genuine care, Epaphroditus demonstrates a service through hardship. Or put another way, he exemplifies suffering for the work of Christ. Not just doing what is easy or what is convenient, but in his aid for others, in his desire to serve Christ and his church, he actually almost dies. And notice one of the terms Paul uses for Epaphroditus here. He calls him his fellow soldier. And I think that flavors the example of suffering here. Suffering for the work of Christ. This isn't passive. It isn't just the experience of hardship in itself, but it's marching through hardship with actual intent. Epaphroditus was a messenger and a minister of the Philippians, to the Philippians. But like a soldier. Now, I'm thankful to one of the commentaries I was reading for pointing this out. There's this connection here between Epaphroditus and Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian in Germany in the early, early half of the 20th century. And as Nazism was, was spreading and was attempting to um, take control of the churches, 
Bonhoeffer was a part of the Confessing Church, or what it was called, the Confessing Church, which was a group sort of resisting this movement. And if you find Bonhoeffer intriguing at all, um, there's an excellent biography. We have it in the church library by Eric Metaxas. Highly recommended. Bonhoeffer, essentially, he had a chance to escape Germany, to leave it in the late 30s, and go serve in America. And actually, he did travel there, and he did, he did for a while. But then he wrote this letter, and I'll read it to you. I've had the time to think and pray about my situation and that of my nation, and to have God's will for me clarified. I've come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice in security. Bonhoeffer's choice to go back to Germany to work to subvert the Nazi government's control of the church to eventually help Jews to escape from Germany, to eventually become a spy. I mean, these, these were driven by a commitment to Christ. It was work against the nation for the sake of Christ or submit to the nation and abandon Christ. And he chose the choice of suffering. It resulted in prison. And eventually, just months before the end of the war, his own death in a concentration camp. This is certainly something that ought to characterize us, our lives. We should be genuinely concerned for others, absolutely. We should bring the gospel to others. I mean, as Paul says in uh, the letter of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Yet let's, let's look at Epaphroditus. Let's look at Bonhoeffer or Paul Jesus. They are an example of serving in hardship, even when it costs. Let's imitate those among us who, like Bonhoeffer, they don't make their choices in security. Well, now, the other thing I'd like to highlight about Epaphroditus, um, you'll notice it here in the text here, it's this last little bit, and it's this kind of harsh-sounding phrase. I'll read it out. So receive in him, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is a, this is a really intriguing part of the text. Is Paul taking like a jab at the Philippians, telling them that they hadn't done enough, but Epaphroditus had? I mean, the language might sound familiar too. Um, it, it's in Colossians 1.24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. But I don't think Paul is criticizing the Philippians here. 
I mean, the, the book of Philippians, it contains some correction for the Philippians, but it is very much a letter of encouragement and of friendship. And, and Paul will write in the end of the letter, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And that definitely doesn't sound like someone who's unhappy with them. And I don't think Paul is simply saying that they hadn't yet brought him money. And since Epaphroditus brought them money, well, now it's, that's settled. Rather, what Paul was lacking was the Philippians themselves. He was, he was lacking their personal presence, their community. And that's what Epaphroditus brought to Paul. Epaphroditus, he, he came to Paul not bringing money that fills up a lack, but he brought himself. And it's similar in the way that Paul uses it in Colossians there. Um, I just quoted that. Paul doesn't make up for the shortcomings of Christ. Well, because he doesn't have any shortcomings. It is making up the personal presence to others. So let me read to you um, what John Piper had to say on this point. Christ has prepared a love offering for the world by suffering and dying for sinners. It is full and lacking in nothing, except one thing, a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world. God's answer to this lack is to call the people of Christ, people like Paul, to make a personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to the world. In doing this, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We finish what they were designed for, namely a personal presentation to the people who do not know about their infinite worth. So what can we learn from Epaphroditus here on this point? The giving of ourselves of our time, and of our lives to others. We can share the gospel with others. We can give gifts of money to those in need. And those things are absolutely necessary and wonderful. But there is something lacking, something that hasn't yet been filled up. If you only ever hand someone a gospel tract and some grocery money. And I absolutely don't mean to heap up guilt on you if you do that. That's not wrong. I mean, that's amazing. But there are, and I know there are, there are too many people in the world and then in this country and in this city and in this church for you to invest time in every one of them. It's just not possible. But I suppose the question I would ask is this. If you've believed the gospel, you've trusted in Christ, who are you pouring out into? Into whose life are you making up a lack? The church, it's a community. It shouldn't be weird to call someone and check up on them, see how they're doing. It shouldn't be weird to go out for coffee with someone just, just to encourage them. It shouldn't be weird to have a group of friends who minister to you and who you can minister to in return shouldn't be weird. So for who are you suffering, even if it's hard, that they might increase in joy, that they might experience, they might experience something more of Christ?
Well, as we close, think with me of Timothy and Epaphroditus' examples. Serving and suffering for the sake of Christ, for the joy of others. They embody the things Paul is calling the Philippians to pursue. They each mirror Christ. Are we fighting to be like this? To count others as worth more than ourselves? To do what Christ calls us to do even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when it's not comfortable? And if we fail at this, which we do, are we in community with those who have walked ahead of us, who have walked further than us, who are living in a manner worthy of the gospel, who are, are liver, living in a greater degree um, reflecting Christ? Do we honor these brothers and sisters, spend time with them, try and catch some of what we're struggling to learn? And going back to what Christian joy is, I quoted this at the beginning. It's a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ and in, in the word and in the world. Do you have years of experience following Christ, being shaped by him and learning from him, fighting sin in your life so that you do shine forth as a light in the world, as you represent him? Are you sharing that joy with others? Are you opening up your homes? Are you present in the lives of others so that they might be built up in that same joy? Well, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us, for sending your son to die in our place for not leaving us without hope, but making it a way for us to be reconciled with you. Jesus, we, we thank you for your love and your humility in dying for sinners, in taking the place of us who didn't deserve it and reconciling us to you. And we pray your gospel would continue to go forth and as many more people come to know your gospel that you would continue that reconciliation. Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would come and that you would bring joy. That in this community, you would show Christ through your word and through the men and, and women around us who imitate him. So God, help us to share what grace we have been given with others and to learn from and receive grace from them in turn. Help us to live as the church, as a gathering of believers that would honor you and represent you to the world. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.